John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the tremendous encouragement that your word is to your people. And Lord, also thank you for the tremendous warning it is to those who rebel against you. I pray both elements of that would come through your word today to us. That you would impact all hearts. Your truth would leave an impression on all of us. And I pray by work of the Holy Spirit that we would be forever changed. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 10 begins not with a geographical or chronological marker, but with a common introductory formula from Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this evokes the question right from the very get go. Who is the you that Jesus is talking to here? Truly, truly, I say to you. It seems best to conclude that Jesus is addressing the crowd which is already gathered around him by the end of chapter 9 of John's Gospel. And I mention this because it's important that you remember that the chapter and verse distinctions that we find in our Bibles were certainly not original. And while they can be helpful in kind of locating particular portions of Scripture, they weren't part of the original text. And they're not infallible dividing points. Sometimes they can even be hindrances to understanding the immediate context of an event because we just think, well, because it's a new chapter, it must be completely separated from what came right before it. William Hendrickson notes that nowhere in John's gospel does the, the solemn expression, truly, truly, I say to you, ever begin a new section. This is always in response to something else that Jesus is already talking about or interacting with. So the question is, what has just happened? Who is Jesus referring to here? Who is he talking to? Identifying the audience helps us in understanding the main intent of the figurative language that Jesus is going to share. You see, Jesus has just finished providing fuller revelation to the man who had been born blind, seeking him out after the Pharisees had put him out of the synagogue. Jesus had explained to his disciples, remember the disciples asked Jesus regarding this man born blind, why is he blind? Was it because of his sin or the sins of his parents and Jesus says it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but this was purpose so that the works of God might be displayed in this man. 
Now, in what sense are the works of God being displayed in this man? Well, I think it can be divided into two interactions with Jesus. The first interaction occurs in this first meeting where Jesus makes clay. He anoints the man's eyes with it. He tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and then wash. This man obeys Jesus. And as he washes in that pool, this man who had never seen a thing in his life sees now. This now-seeing man is then interrogated, and we looked at this in previous weeks, by the religious leaders who already resolutely manifested their hatred for Christ, their rebellion against Jesus. And the man exhibits great boldness and courage amidst a whole bunch of manipulation and intimidation tactics that the religious leaders are unleashing upon him. He resolutely testifies to what he knows. And then he draws some simple and concise, true conclusions from the information that he's been granted thus far. He says, Jesus must be a prophet. He says, he must be from God. And he just does it on simple conclusions or just based on some very evident truths that have been presented to him. And while his arguments surely win the day, exposing even the hypocrisy and duplicity of the Pharisees, how is he rewarded? Well, he's rewarded by the Pharisees by being kicked out of the synagogue. The very thing, you remember, this man's parents didn't want to say much about him. They were scared that they might be kicked out of the synagogue. And this man is astonished to realize that all of his life, he hasn't been the only one blind. The religious leaders, steeped in all of their knowledge, were the very ones who were unable to connect the dots here. Jesus had just done something that no one had ever done before. He gave sight to a man born blind. And he did it in order to complete the works of God. And the Pharisees, meanwhile, were unwilling to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah because they were blind. They were the ones who loved the darkness, and therefore they hated the light of the world. This is Jesus' first interaction with this man, his first encounter, and through that encounter, this man has received his physical sight. But it's the second encounter that this man has with Jesus that makes an eternal difference. Certainly, it was a tremendous miracle to be granted physical sight, but an even greater blessing would be given to this man. Jesus hears that this courageous witness has now been excommunicated and he finds him and he asks the man, do you believe in the son of man? The man shows himself as willing and ready to believe. He just needs to be pointed to who he is. Recognize here, he's not just trusting anybody who came up to him. He's already admitted that he believes that Jesus is a prophet, that he came from God. So he's now seeking that knowledge and information from Jesus. Who is he that I might believe in him? And now Jesus opens this man's spiritual eyes to see that he was much more than merely a prophet. Yes, he is the greatest prophet, but he's also the greatest priest and the greatest king. Jesus, the God-man, was the promised Messiah, the Son of Man, who had come to provide salvation to the lost, to grant sight to those who were blind. And this man immediately confesses upon hearing that, Lord, I believe. And we're told that he prostrates himself, he worships before Jesus. And Jesus doesn't stop him, does he? Jesus is worthy of that worship. Jesus explains that this was the reason that he had come into the world, to grant sight to those who see and to expose the blindness of those who can't see. It's true that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, The glorious thought that we who are lost and blind and dead might be saved by the grace of God and granted salvation through faith in His Son, Jesus. 
Yet as Jesus mentions even here in John 9.39, the consequence of Jesus' coming also meant judgment. You see, the world already stood condemned. Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned before the coming of Christ. But Jesus' coming into the world had and continues to have moral implications. For those who reject Jesus, there is an implication. There is a consequence that comes from that rejection. And the Pharisees are just incited by Jesus' words. I mean, they're fuming, angry, and mad that Jesus might even include them in his denunciation. People are blind. They even ask Jesus, we're not blind too, are we? They can't believe that Jesus might accuse them of blindness. Remember, these are the ones who knew the law and the prophets. They followed all the traditions. They've been long-term members of the holier-than-thou club, right? And so they're sitting there going, how could you be calling us blind? But Jesus exposes what is precisely so horrible about their position. He says, if you were blind, you might be made to see. The problem with you is you don't even think you're blind. And therefore, your sin remains. The religious leaders of Israel were blind to their own spiritual condition. They were blind to their blindness. At least this blind man recognized his blindness. It was teachable. Pharisees are not. Unless the Pharisees repent and turn to Christ, they all would perish in their sin and come under the wrath of a holy God. Getting, by the way, what we all justly deserve, eternal punishment in hell. We all deserve that. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve that. So when people say, is it fair that God sent anyone to hell? Well, it's absolutely fair that God sent everyone to hell. It would be just. God is holy and we're wretched sinners and rebels. We deserve hell. Praise be to God that God is not only fair and just, but he's also gracious and merciful. And that's where the good news of the gospel shines across this dark backdrop. Jesus even continues to hold out hope here. Even to these men who are plotting his destruction, if you were blind, you would have no sin. In other words, if you would only acknowledge your blindness, forgiveness could be yours as well. Sight could be yours today. Now, this context is very important. This is what's been leading up to then chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you. John 10 is one of those chapters that I believe is especially beloved by Christians because it provides a whole lot of encouragement to us. The, the picture of the good shepherd is one that is endearing to us. And we love the, the, the concept of this. And we delight ourselves in recognizing that Jesus is our good shepherd. The one who comes to us. The one who calls us by name. The one who comforts us. The one who leads us into freedom. The one who provides for our needs. The one who guides and directs us both now and in the life to come There's just tremendous comfort and encouragement that is present here in this text for those who are Christians. But I don't want you to miss the fact that these doctrines, these very doctrines which provide Christians with great hope, are also the very same doctrines which are the most distasteful for those who live in rebellion against God. The good shepherd indeed cares for his sheep. So as part of his care, he will by no means leave those who mistreat his sheep unpunished. He will bring swift judgment to them. Those who plot and scheme against the flock of God will ultimately have to deal with this good shepherd. Ever realized that before when people say things, well, how can a good God send people to hell? Well, his 
the punishment of hell is a function of God's goodness. Because God is good, he punishes sin. Because God is good, he punishes rebellion. This good shepherd acts in goodness. And some of that goodness is seen in his just justice. And yet another element of his goodness is seen in his mercy, his grace, his love. This is the same point that Jesus made above. While he came not for judgment, in another sense, he did come for judgment. Because the necessary consequence of his coming would be to expose those who are truly his own sheep and those who aren't. Those who refuse to come to Christ mark themselves as being outside of God's flock. For Jesus is the good shepherd over God's flock. So if you reject the shepherd, you reject your position as being one among God's people. Again, recognize this. The goodness of Christ is manifested both in his gracious compassion and mercy as well as in his pure and swift righteous judgment. I'm reminded of of a famous sermon introduction by C.H. Spurgeon. I'm sure you've heard this little snippet before. It's a quite famous little snippet from one of Spurgeon's sermons. In this little paragraph, he skillfully articulates how the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, is simultaneously loved by God's people and hated by the world. The same doctrinal truth, loved by God's people, hated by the world. He says this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry uh, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever moving ocean. But when God ascends to his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth and we proclaim an enthroned God. And his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and hated. And then is it that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is is not the God that they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is, upon, it is God upon his throne whom we trust. Recognize that the message that Jesus has to proclaim here on this day is given to a mixed crowd. Yes, Jesus' disciples are present. But a crowd of sufficient size is surrounded him, including some Pharisees who are incensed that Jesus has not only called them blind, but now he's even insinuated that they're blind to their own blindness. The recorded response by the Jews to Jesus' words reiterate this fact. Look down at John 10, 19 through 20. 19 through 20. Look at it. The division occurred among them again, among the Jews, because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others are saying, these are not the sayings of the one demon possessed. The demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. 
Can he? Note this diverse audience is split regarding how to handle Jesus. It's even a a playing out of the words that Jesus has to say here. There are some who receive Jesus' words with gladness and some who hate them. We even say they must be demon-possessed. Notice that they even mention here that uh, in response to that, a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Again, I think it's all pointing to the fact that it's all in that same context. They're still picturing this man who was born blind whom Jesus healed his sight. It was the very argument that that man born blind connected for the Pharisees. He said, listen, no one's ever done this before. All I can tell you is I was blind and now I see. Everything points to this discourse in John 10 being the continuation of the discussion that's already begun in John 9. So how is John 10 structured? We're told in verse 6, Greek word here translated proverb or parable or allegory or figure of speech. Most translations have here figure of speech. The word only happens in two other places in the New Testament. I'm looking at the word John 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. This is a reference to verses 1 through 5, what's going on there. It's referred to here as a figure of speech. That word in Greek happens only two other places in the New Testament. One of them happens in John 16, verses 25 and 29. And in that passage, Jesus is explaining that while he has been speaking in figurative language, an hour will soon come when he won't. The word is also used over in 2 Peter 2.22, where Peter quotes from Proverbs 26.11, a dog will return to its own vomit. Obviously, they're being used in the sense of a a proverb. Um, And meanwhile, in John, it seems like the, the term has a little bit more general reference to it. It's interesting, the word parable, parabole in, in Greek, does not occur in the book of John. It happens over 50 times in Mark, Matthew, and, and Luke in the Synoptic Gospels, but it doesn't happen once in John's Gospel. If you're looking for parables, you don't often come to John's Gospel because it's not where there is present. But here we have a word, being used, translated here, figurative language, that has a lot of kinship to that of the parables. But as is often the case in Jesus' ministry, we're told that as Jesus tells us this uh, illustration, provides this extended metaphor, the audience of Jesus doesn't understand. And so Jesus provides a further explanation, which really does greatly help our interpretive efforts. You know, with figurative language, you have an interesting situation. There's particular dangers that we have to guard against when we come across things like this. Remember, what we're really after here is the intended meaning of the text. What was intended to come across? What meaning are we supposed to understand? And on one side of the spectrum is an overly wooden hermeneutic that fails to take into account literary devices. So you could become so literalistic in your interpretation that you would miss the main point and purpose of the text. Remember, biblical authors, just like we do today, can make use of artistic use of language to communicate something. The Bible is full of these sorts of expressions. So we could come to some very strange literalistic interpretations that would result um, if you weren't very careful with moments like these. On the other side of the spectrum is an interpretive model that overanalyzes details and draws odd, strange connections which cannot be demonstrated from the text itself. In other words, we must be aware of allegorizing texts with the purpose of drawing spiritual meanings out of details which were not meant to be taken in the way that they are. Some of those famous examples of that happened in some of Jesus' parables where all of a sudden every little 
nitpicky detail is made out to be something else, so some other spiritual meaning. And pretty soon what you have, you just have 150 people with 150 different ideas about all those interpretive methodologies. So what kind of things could we, maybe a couple rules of thumb that might be helpful when interacting with texts such as these. Well, number one, I would say this, any specific spiritual connection which the scriptures provide are obviously absolutely true. So in this case, Jesus tells us emphatically that what he's making use of here is figurative language. Not only that, but what goes on is he provides further explanation, which he explains the details of the uh, extended metaphor that he gives here. So we should cling to those and be thankful for those. The second thing to be said, though, is this. We can also learn from patterns of interpretation in the Bible, because if the Bible provides us with a pattern, with an example of how to interpret, for example, if the New Testament provides us examples of how to interpret the Old Testament, we should really key in on those. We should make use of those and recognize that there's a pattern that we're being taught. It's like just learning from the, the apostles and their evangelism, right? If you want to learn how to evangelism, take a look at how the apostles did it. If you want to learn how Jesus did evangelism, take a look at how he did it. Similarly with preaching, similarly with interpreting the Bible. Thankfully, in the New Testament, we have all kinds of examples of the Old Testament being appealed to and being interpreted. So let's learn from the way in which the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Patterns of interpretation can be very, very useful as we seek to find parallels in figurative language. A third point to be made is this. We must subject all interpretations to the scrutiny of grammatical, historical, literary, and canonical contexts. Context is king in interpretation. And so we've got to make sure that we've taken a look at not both the immediate context, its grammar and the history, but we also must consider the canonical context, the context of the entire Bible as it relates to that interpretation. A fourth thing that can be mentioned is this, that you know, you can, we have such a rich resource at our fingertips today, literally at our fingertips, don't we? Where there's so many brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us who have made comments on texts and have done interpretive studies through texts. And so something that can be very, very rich and edifying and useful is considering the spectrum of what has been said on various texts. Again, at least what you'll acknowledge often is if there is great divergence of opinion, those are the places where I would say be extra careful about the conclusions that you draw from that text. A fifth and final thing to mention is this. Check all of your interpretations and applications to ensure that they're in line with the full testimony of Scripture. This is the famous statement, Scripture interprets Scripture. So if there's some conclusion that's being drawn and it's just patently unscriptural, then that is a false conclusion and should not be drawn. We allow a thoroughgoing systematic theology study to help us in the interpretations and applications that we make from the text. The text before us provides a really fitting example of this. Jesus, after having made this, this uh, kind of extended metaphor, if we call it that, Jesus identifies himself as the door of the sheep in verses 7 and 9. And then in verses 11 and 14, which we'll talk about next time, he identifies himself as the good shepherd. He goes on to describe the sheep throughout the, the following explanation. He says the sheep are those whom Christ died for, those whom were destined to be saved, those who obtain eternal life, those who hear and obey the voice of Jesus and follow him. Those are all descriptions of the sheep that are mentioned. And then the robbers, thieves, strangers, hirelings that Jesus mentions represent the enemies of Christ, false shepherds who are bent on opposing the good shepherd and wrecking havoc upon his flock. And you can say, well, what's his immediate reference for that? Well, again, I think immediate context points us in the direction of what we should be looking at. Things epitomized in the actions of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. 
But then you get to something like, this is an interesting point, the doorkeeper. Look at verse 3. To him, the doorkeeper opens. Now, nothing in Jesus' following explanation says anything about the doorkeeper. And so, as a result, you can imagine that there's a whole lot of (laughs) suppositions as to who this doorkeeper is. Everything from God, the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist are all mentioned as potentials for being this doorkeeper. But perhaps this is a place where it's best left alone. I think that this connection, this detail, um, might just be reiterating the fact, as we'll see in a moment, that the genuine shepherd is recognized by his people. Again, be careful about how far you take these sorts of details. Not every detail in the scripture should be read with a specific spiritual reference. Beware of over-allegorizing. Not every detail mandates a deeper significance. Oftentimes, there's a lot of really crazy theology that spurs off of something that doesn't have any really good direct ties to the Scripture. So I would just say, be careful. In other words, this. Identify the main idea of the text and let that guide the way in which you interpret the finer details. Get the main idea and allow that to help you in interpreting the finer details. Here in John 9, Jesus makes two more of his famous I am statements. He says, I am the good shepherd. He also says, I am the door. Now, both of these statements have implications for everyone. Whether you repent and believe in Christ or refuse and deny him, the implications of these statements are massive. But these two metaphors have perplexed a whole lot of people, particularly verses um, 7 through 9 or 7 through 10 have been difficult for a lot of people because it seems like he's setting himself up for talking about he's the good shepherd. But meanwhile, before he does that, he ends up saying, I am the door. Or I am the door of the sheep. How can Jesus both be the good shepherd, John 10, 11, and 14, and simultaneously be the door, too, in John 10, 7, and 9? I think the answer is found in the fact that no one symbol by itself could ever do justice to the greatness of Jesus. Not any one symbol could ever do justice to the fullness of the greatness of Christ. And so while it is certainly true that a door cannot at the same time be a shepherd, nothing prevents Jesus from being both at the same time. He is both the door and he is the good shepherd. By the way, this is nothing unusual regarding Jesus in the Gospels. Consider these examples, for for instance. Jesus is both the bread of life, John 6, 35, as well as the one who gives the bread of life, John 6, 51. Jesus speaks the truth, John 8, 45 and 46. And Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. Jesus shows the way and is the way, John 14, 6. So there's nothing unusual about this. What is unusual is what he claims for himself, which we'll look at in just a moment. There are a couple of layers, I think, that are, of lessons that are present in this text. I think one is to, what, what's the purpose? Why does Jesus say this on this occasion? I think one is to help Jesus' disciples identify genuine shepherds. There's very helpful instruction given here. Remember, Jesus has just gotten done denouncing the Pharisees again. So one of the questions might be floating around our minds is, well, how do I identify a true and genuine shepherd from a charlatan? How do I know the true from the fake? I think that there's some good instruction for that here. The passage, though, also declares, fundamentally declares this, that Christ is the chief and supreme and ultimate good shepherd. All other true shepherds are merely under-shepherds, delegated some responsibility by Jesus, but charged with the responsibility of pointing others to him. Any good 
under shepherd, any true shepherd will point to Jesus. And they will guide and direct sheep in accordance with how Jesus desires them to be led. Jesus claims in this text something that no man of God had ever claimed. He claims to be the only and indispensable entrance into salvation and abundant life. Ezekiel never made that claim. Jeremiah never made that claim. Moses never made that claim. Here Jesus unequivocally says, I am the door. He's not only the good shepherd, but he's also the door. Without Christ, you don't have a place within God's flock, within God's people, within God's kingdom. God's kingdom. So while the text speaks to the identification of God-ordained leaders in general, it also declares the supremacy of Christ and man's desperate need for Jesus because Jesus is the only means by which a man may be saved. I want to, this week and next week, talk about marks of a shepherd. The first set of these this week, and we'll pick up with these next time as well. Marks of a shepherd. I have four I'd like to mention here this morning. Four marks of a shepherd this morning. We'll pick up on some more next time. First of all, the first mark of a genuine shepherd is this. A shepherd has legitimate authority over his sheep. A shepherd has legitimate authority over his sheep. Before we talk about legitimate authority, I want to do this in the order that Jesus does. Talk about illegitimate authority. And Jesus refers to these individuals as those as the ones not entering through the door. The ones not entering through the door. Jesus is deliberately setting up a contrast for his audience here. Remember, what has he just gotten done saying in, in John 9:41? If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. The thief or robber is identified first of all. And how is he identified first of all? By his unlawful entry into the sheepfold. The way he gets into the sheep pen. Now, just in case you're not totally familiar with Eastern shepherding practices of Jesus' day, let me explain quickly what's going on here. In the usual practice, shepherds would lead their sheep into sheepfolds at night to provide some increased protection for the sheep from natural predators and also against human thieves. It would keep sheep contained and it would ward off a good number of intruders in the night. This was typically accomplished. By finding an area that already had some natural kind of protective nature to it, maybe near a mountainside with some maybe some uh, outgrowths from that mountain coming out where they would provide at least three walls of protection. And then they would construct something on the fourth wall, including a door, an entry point point. But sometimes if such a place was not just naturally available, shepherds would create or construct a safe area by the building of walls, usually just piling up stones until they got, some say, up to eight to ten feet tall. Now, you can imagine the work and expense involved in creating one of these sorts of sheepfolds where you have enough room to draw your sheep. So oftentimes, several shepherds would cooperate in the building of such a sheepfold and they would share its use. They actually bring all of their sheep into a joint place together. This becomes important in a moment further. Jesus then begins here with the negative picture. And no doubt, I think it's because of what he's just gotten done saying to the Pharisees who have adamantly rejected Jesus. And how did they treat this man who had just healed of his blindness? By kicking him out of the synagogue, right? That's how they treated one of Jesus' sheep. So Jesus says this, Only thieves and robbers work in secrecy, 
and plot and scheme to grasp authority. What is what have the religious leaders been doing ever since Jesus was born and seeking pretty much his destruction? You see this throughout Jesus' ministry and it becomes a heightened sense in which the Pharisees are plotting Jesus' death. Jesus describes here that these have an illegitimate authority. They don't belong in the sheepfold. They've entered through another way. They climbed the wall in the dark of night seeking sheep for their own purposes. They're not those who um, had... They are those who had wrongly gained mastery over the people of Israel. They were exercising authority, but it was an illegitimate authority. And so it is still today, isn't it? There are false teachers that abound who have no business playing the part of shepherds. They're really just thieves and robbers. In contrast to this is the one who has rightful authority, the genuine shepherd. He is pictured here as the one... Entering by the door, look at verse 2, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. This one who exercises rightful authority can walk boldly right up to the front door and open it. Shepherds who kept their sheep in the fold would enter and exit through the door that was designed for that. You wouldn't have to engage in any trickery or plotting or scheming or finding some way to jump over the wall in the night. They had rightful authority. And they entered through the prescribed means. You see, those who are true shepherds come in accordance with God's word. They're upright men of integrity. And they're submitted to God and they'll speak his word to his people. They don't achieve their position through politics. They don't achieve their position through manipulations. They're appointed by God and given for the edification of the body of Christ. And consider Jesus whom came in the ultimate sense and presented himself to Israel in a lawful and straightforward manner, in absolute fulfillment with with the Scriptures. And we see that note over and over and over again in the New Testament. This happened in fulfillment of the prophecy. This happened in fulfillment of the prophecy. And Jesus himself says, not one jot nor tittle of the law will ever pass away until all is fulfilled. Again, we see Jesus fulfilling every aspect of the law. He came in openness. He came in integrity. He came without sin. He comes boldly to the door For he is the shepherd. Not only is this authority legitimate, it's recognized as such. It's recognized authority. The doorkeeper that's there opens to him. Now, the construction of a sheepfold through cooperative effort also allowed another thing. The shepherds could cooperate with one another in sharing night watching duty. So you didn't have to have all the shepherds there through the night. You could select one among among the members or... Maybe even hire a doorkeeper who would keep watch over the sheep at night. That man's job would be to watch over the sheep, keeping the door locked to all but genuine shepherds. And notice that Jesus explains that the doorkeeper opens the door to the shepherds. The shepherd's rightful authority is recognized and it's welcomed. He opens the door. He comes in. He's welcome. This principle, I think, lies behind even our practice of ordination. You know, a local church recognizes the gifting of the Lord upon a man for service in God's flock. And recognize that formal thing of ordination is really just happens after an informal time of testing and proving that is the case. This individual really has been raised up by the Lord and gifted for shepherding God's people. The doorkeeper recognizes the authority of the shepherd. The second mark of a genuine shepherd, though, is that he brings and leads his own sheep. He not only has a legitimate authority, but he brings and leads his own sheep. He uses a lot, utilizes that authority in a responsible way. 
He brings and leads his own sheep. A false shepherd, on the other hand, attempts to steal sheep. Jump to verse 10 real quickly. The thief comes only to steal. Jesus notes the motivation behind the false shepherd's actions. He comes in order that he might steal. That's, That's the natural consequence of exercising illegitimate authority. When someone takes that which is not theirs, it's called stealing. And should a man demand his way despite the fact that he's not in charge? Should he take another man's sheep and do with them as he pleases? It's thievery. The thief does not act in the interests of the owner of the sheep, nor does he act in the best interests of the sheep. He seeks his own aggrandizement. He wants to make much of himself. And his actions betray his motivations. He sneaks in because he knows what he's doing is wrong. On the contrary, a genuine shepherd gathers his sheep. John, uh, Jesus says in verse 3 here at the end of it, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And he puts forth all his own. He goes ahead of them. Again, let me explain quickly the implications of this cooperative sheepfold arrangement. Let's imagine a hypothetical situation where you have three shepherds who have flocks of sheep and they bring them and drop them off at the sheepfold in the evening. The next morning they come back to the sheepfold to collect their sheep and go out in the pastures to feed. Well, what would keep the sheep separate? How would you know whose sheep were whose? For us Texans, we begin to realize that we're a little bit distanced from shepherding. We might know a thing or two about cattle ranching, but we don't know much about shepherding. What do you do to distinguish cattle? You brand them, right? You put a brand on their side and then you go, there's my mark. That's one of mine. Here, interestingly enough, such a mark is not necessary. As a matter of fact, such marks were completely unnecessary. Why? Because all the shepherd had to do was call to his sheep. Upon calling his sheep, his sheep heard his voice and would come to him. And what a tender picture this is. A shepherd shepherd comes into the fold after having provided them with protection through the night. And now he calls them by name. And they come. They come to him. There's so many tender pictures of shepherding present here as we think then about the relationship that exists between under shepherds, between pastors and elders and and the uh, congregations that they serve in. I talked recently to a pastor who serves at a church that uh, has no formal membership. There's no membership program. There's not even any like, okay, if you've been here for three weeks, you become a member. There's not even that. There's, there's no membership. There's absolutely no membership. People come and go as they please. There's no attempt at all at trying to identify who's part of the church and who's not. Uh, and, they, it, it, and the way it was presented is almost like, you know, this is the right way of doing things. This is the way it should be done. People should just feel comfortable to come and go as they please without any consideration whatsoever about uh, whether or not they're a member of a local church. But the question I ask is, how does one exercise pastoral care if you don't know who are your sheep? Right. I mean, if a pastor is one who shepherds is an under shepherd of the chief shepherd of the good shepherd, he shepherds the flock of God. How is he to engage in his shepherding if he's not able to identify who are his sheep? It's greatly problematic. And it's not that there's only one way in which membership can and should be done. I mean, multiple ways in which you approach the issue of membership. 
But you must consider the fact that those who are shepherds, those who are pastors, and this is what I encourage them with, understand that you're held responsible by God to watch over those sheep he's entrusted to your care. How do you do that if you don't know them by name? How do you do that if you don't care about them? How do you do that if there's no amount of connection? Sheep need to be known. They need to be loved. They need to be cared for. And a genuine shepherd feels that responsibility in a very big way. You see, a genuine shepherd gathers his sheep, he calls them by name, and then he leads his sheep. Again, what a contrast to us Texans and cowboys, right? You drive cattle. You get behind cattle and you push them. You don't do that with sheep. Sheep follow a leader. A shepherd, after having gathered his sheep together, puts himself at the front of the sheep. And walks forward. He leads them out of the sheepfold to land where they could graze. You see, a shepherd is one who takes the lead. He doesn't get behind the sheep and push them around. He gets in front and leads them. This is why I believe that the elder qualifications regarding um, a man being above reproach are so very important. Because the example of pastors is crucial in their shepherding. They must lead out. Third mark of a genuine shepherd. Third mark, a shepherd is recognized and followed by a sheep. A shepherd is recognized and followed by a sheep. I heard before that a leader who has no one following is just taking a walk. Right? A leader who has no one following is just taking a walk. A genuine shepherd is one who's recognized and followed by a sheep. Jesus explains here, look at verse 5. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Sheep flee from the voice of strangers. A false shepherd, a.k.a. a thief or a robber, who illegitimately enters into the sheepfold with intentions to steal the sheep for selfish ends, will have no success in leading the sheep, for they will not follow him. Leanne Morris notes, Travelers in modern Palestine have sometimes been able to document this. It appears that strangers, even when dressed in the shepherd's clothing and attempting to imitate his call, succeed only in making the sheep run away. Even if they put on the garments, even if they have a lot of mimicry like the shepherd, the, the sheep know the difference between the voice of their shepherd and the voice of an imposter. So it goes with false shepherds. They operate through other means to accomplish their ends, but genuine sheep will not ultimately follow them. These false shepherds will make attempts to push and pull. They will intimidate and deceive. They will manipulate and tempt. They will do all they can to try to get sheep to come after them. But sheep will not follow them. They will not be engaged in shepherding, these false shepherds, because sheep don't ultimately follow imposters. And as I thought about this, I thought about what a wondrous gift it is that when a person is saved, as John records in 1 John 2, it says, as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, see what's, by the way, John is not saying there, there's no place for teachers whatsoever. Obviously, John himself is teaching here. right? So what's he referring to? He's saying that all those who are genuinely saved have the Holy Spirit within them and there's granted them a discernment. Even the babiest of Christians, even the youngest of true believers are granted discernment. And it is good to be wary of strange philosophy and strange theology and strange ethics. 
Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Even for those who aren't able to offer articulate answers to heresy, they will instinctively know when they hear something that is not the voice of their shepherd. Do you see why it's so important that we're familiar with the Word of God? That we know God's voice? Because then we'll know if someone is supposedly an under-shepherd, if they're speaking God's words or not. I can remember being quite green in theology as was my first year at seminary. And I remember sitting in one particular class, and the class discussion seemed to just always go in bad directions. And I, I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, this isn't right. Some stuff in this that is not right. But I couldn't even articulate why or how. Have you ever been there before? We recognize there's something not right here, but I can't exactly pinpoint what it is. And I can remember there's somebody else in the class who would raise her hand and make statements that were just so inherently biblical. And I remember rejoicing in my heart. I remember going up to this individual after class and telling him, thank you so much for what you have said. It has been straight on. And I think for perhaps all of us, we've had some moment in our lives where we would recognize this sort of reality. Hopefully we're all growing in our knowledge of the Scriptures and growing our relationship with the Lord. But if you have been saved, you've experienced the same. You might not be the most articulate theologian, but you know sound doctrine when you hear it, and you can detect when something that is said doesn't fit the genuine gospel. Galatians 1. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Sheep flee from the voice of strangers. Meanwhile, why? Because the sheep know and listen to the voice of their shepherd. That's why they know and listen to the voice of their shepherd. This is one of the most interesting facts about sheep. There have been big studies done on sheep because they are present in and through the scriptures. To say that they aren't the smartest animal in the world is a severe, massive understatement. Often sheep are referred to as dumb animals. They need a whole lot of TLC, a whole lot of tender loving care. They need a whole lot of attention. But one unique facet about sheep is that they know the voice of their master. They know the voice of their shepherd. They know the distinctive voice of their own shepherd and they respond to his voice alone. I find that such an interesting facet considering the emphasis that Jesus places in his ministry upon the words that he speaks, the word of God, how important this is to the life of believers. Phil Keller explains, even if a visitor should use the same words or phrases as that of their rightful owner, sheep would not react in the same way. It is a case of becoming actually conditioned to the familiar nuances and personal accent of their shepherd's call. They know their shepherd. And because they know and listen to his voice, they follow the shepherd. They follow their shepherd. It really is a sweet and touching picture when a genuine shepherd who's acting in accordance with the authority that's delegated to him in the prescribed manner leads the sheep entrusted to his care and the sheep in humble submission follow their shepherd. There is a beautiful picture that is presented us there. And it happens on so many different levels, doesn't it? It happens within the family. The relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children 
It happens within the church congregation. And it ultimately, in the biggest sense, happens between Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and all of us who are His sheep. This is such a tender relationship. There's a personal acquaintance between the shepherd and sheep. He calls them by name. They're described as His own. He accepts responsibility for their care. And the sheep follow Him. And they trust Him. Because there's genuine love and care and relationship that's been established and it's been built over years and years and years of time. It's a quick side note. There are various reasons why people have to move from one place to another, even as it relates to church work. Pastors move from one place to another. And um, there are probably good reasons and bad reasons in general, but these things do happen. And it's not to make a statement that that's always wrong. But I do think something is lost when pastors won't stay for a long time at a place. There is something of a trust that is developed that only happens over time. There's something wonderful about that relationship that exists between pastors and church body. These sheep follow and trust their shepherd. The fourth and final mark that I want to mention this morning of a genuine shepherd is a shepherd blesses his sheep. A shepherd blesses his sheep. What do false shepherds do? They kill and destroy. They came to kill, to steal, to kill and destroy. So after having stolen the sheep, their intentions are to kill and destroy them. This is why charlatan pastors and preachers and televangelists are so very destructive. They purport to be men of God, followers of Christ, shepherds of the flock of God, but their real desire is to become fat off the sheep. Their real desire is to use sheep to their own ends. They're just on a power trip. They want money. They want whatever else, but it's not godly. They seek to steal, kill, and destroy. And a massive and horrible mark has been left on this world by those who have been deceived by such false shepherds. I think this is why there's so many warnings that come to God's people regarding the danger of false teachers. Remember, Jesus' strongest denunciations are against the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Think of Matthew 23 with all the woes that Jesus speaks to them. On On the contrary, genuine shepherds offer salvation. Now, while... The statements that Jesus has made find appropriate parallels to the local church today and the relationships that are enjoyed between under-shepherds and, and the church congregation. Jesus now makes some statements that are completely unique to his person and to his work. Calvin says it well. When the term shepherd is applied to men, it is used, as we say, in a subordinate sense. And Christ shares the honor with his ministers in such a manner that he is still, he still continues to be the only shepherd, both of themselves and of the whole flock. So Calvin is saying here is this. While Christ delegates some authority within the body of Christ with under shepherds, the way that he does that is in such a manner that he maintains his status as the good shepherd, both over under shepherds and over the rest of the flock of God. We're all sheep and he is our good shepherd. Jesus says this in verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then continuing, all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus unequivocally explains himself to be the door of the sheep. 
Jesus is the final fulfillment of Moses' prayer found in Numbers 27, verses 16 and 17. May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, Moses' concern is maybe immediate concern as regards to when he was about to, to die, who would take his place. But the ultimate fulfillment of this is found in Jesus. This is exactly what is described as his actions here. Look at verse 9. I'm the door. If anyone goes through me, he'll be saved. He'll go in and out and find pasture. The very thing that Moses was longing that God's people would have is found ultimately in Jesus. Jesus says, all that came before me are thieves and robbers. This all obviously has to be limited in its extent. It's a reference to all those who sought to elevate themselves rather than advance God's kingdom. For example, John the Baptist pointed men to Jesus rather than pointing them to himself. Remember, he says, I must decrease and he must increase. So this is a reference to those who try to advance themselves rather than the kingdom of God. Again, contextually, along with the present tense verb here, are, I think, squarely explains who these people are. It's a reference to, again, these Pharisees who are resisting Jesus at every turn. Jesus says, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Salvation is in Christ alone. Access to the Father is possible only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And while we can say it this way, there are multiple roads to God, because every day, one day, everyone will go before God. There's only one means, one road through Jesus to salvation, to forgiveness to mercy, to grace. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And since Jesus alone is the door, all under-shepherds point to Him. J.C. Ryle said it this way, The true shepherd of souls is he who enters the ministry with a single eye to Christ, desiring to glorify Christ, doing all in the strength of Christ, preaching Christ's doctrine, walking in Christ's steps, and laboring to bring men and women to Christ. All genuine shepherds make much about Christ. What a beautiful illustration Jesus gives here for us, that He is the door. He is the door, the only door, the only means by which you can enter and receive salvation. But soon is coming a day where that door will be shut and there'll be no further entries. It'll be similar to the days of Noah, who once it came time to enter into the ark, God shut the door and everyone outside of the ark would find the furious wrath of the holy God as that flood flooded the entire earth. So it will be that only those who enter through Christ Only those who are found in Christ will be preserved from the final judgment and the great day of wrath of God. Christ and Christ alone has made a way where there was no way. He opened a way into the holy presence of God through His blood being shed upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And by living a righteous life, fulfilling all righteousness, that we might be clothed in righteous garments and be ushered into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And please note this. It's not enough 
just to notice the door. It's not enough just to recognize the door. It's not enough to just comment on the door, to think about the door. You must enter through the door. You must repent. You must believe in Christ in order that you might be saved. You see, genuine shepherds offer salvation and they offer the things necessary for life and beyond. This is part of the blessing that shepherds pour out on the sheep. A genuine shepherd, contrary to the thief and robber, the genuine shepherd seeks the welfare of the sheep. He lives and dies that the sheep would be cared for. And literally, we'll talk about this next time, he's willing to sacrifice himself for the welfare, the prosperity of his sheep. Jesus says that this, his purpose is to save, to allow his sheep to go in and out and find pasture. And rather than steal, kill, and destroy, he has come that you might have life. And that you might have it abundantly. You see, by entering through the one and only doors to salvation, Jesus, we receive freedom from guilt and misery and the punishment of sin. And not only this, but we're guaranteed perfect protection from ultimate danger and harm. You're provided ultimate prosperity in Christ. This doesn't mean earthly prosperity, but prosperity in Christ. All of the riches of spiritual blessings come to us in Jesus And we're provided perfect protection, not protection from necessarily any sickness or injury or even death in this life, but protection from final judgment. Such that even death, our enemy, is defeated by Jesus. Death for a Christian just means entrance into God's presence, being ushered into the presence of our Lord. Jesus came that true life might be granted to his sheep and that they might have life abundantly. This is what the shepherd desires. He promotes the well-being of his sheep. He's not content, as F.F. Bruce said it, that they should eke out a bare and miserable existence. He wants them to live life to the full, to have plenty of good pasturage and enjoy good health. And if that's true of shepherds in general, you can be sure it's super abundantly true of Christ, the good shepherd. Anyone who claims that Christianity is a massive cosmic killjoy, a damper on happiness, is completely deceived. That's exactly where the devil wants to portray the picture as. But in reality, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, comes down from our Lord. And all those gifts which God provides to us are merely meant to remind us of just how awesome and incredible our God really is. Bergen said it this way, the promises connected here seem to imply that in their daily walk, in the world's dusky lane and crowded mart, the people of God will find spiritual support and consolation, even meat for their souls, which the world knows nothing of. I want to close this morning by just reiterating a portion of, a scripture from the Old Testament. We had it read this morning from Ezekiel 34. And I'm hoping as I've been walking through this text, you've seen the connections. There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the people of Israel. And he gives a strong condemning statement regarding the supposed shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. I want to pick up in this verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to these shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? 
You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the disease you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. You have scattered for lack of, they have scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast in the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the face surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. This being the case, the Lord has judgment to come. Israel's supposed shepherds are behaving like thieves and robbers. So God will take action. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and will make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they have scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. They will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. Bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. You see, God never lets go of his ultimate status as shepherd of the sheep. That's why ultimately all under-shepherds will be held accountable by the good shepherd. He will not only bring false shepherds to judgment, but what's so wonderful here is this. That even when all these under-shepherds have completely failed in their responsibilities, God says, I'll take it upon myself to look after their needs. They wouldn't care for them when they were broken and sick and scattered, but I will bring them back. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen the sick. The fat and strong, however, I will destroy. And I'll feed them with judgment. And then there's a blessed prophecy. All this culminates and is spoken of here and it's fulfilled in none other than Jesus No one else qualifies for this. Look at verse 23 and 24. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Next week we'll consider a few more marks of a shepherd as these are presented by and then ultimately exemplified in Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the moments we could spend together this morning contemplating the wondrous relationship that exists between a shepherd and a sheep. Thank you for analogies such as these. Thank you for metaphors such as these, which just evoke in our minds pictures of the wonderful care and love that exists between you and your sheep. Father, I pray that the reality of Jesus being the Good Shepherd would really come home to us in these moments. That those who aren't part of His flock would be granted repentance and faith and become part of that flock, even this morning. Thank You for the way in which You shepherd us. Thank You for the way in which You bless us. 
Thank You for making Yourself known to us. And Lord, as this local congregation is just an illustration of this greater reality, I pray that the relationship that exists between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow sheep in Christ's fold, that the relationships that exist here would demonstrate the love and care, would be little manifestations of the love and care that exists between the shepherd and the sheep. Thank You, Lord. May You use this for Your kingdom and for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.